Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7. Again, as I mentioned before reading the text, I hope to pick up and elaborate upon the threads of last week's sermon from Romans 8 and question 32 of an Orthodox Catechism. For what cause, the question reads, is Christ called the only begotten Son of God when we also are the sons of God? Because Christ alone is the eternal and natural Son of the Eternal Father, and we are but sons adopted of the Father by grace for His sake. There is a distinction in the Catechism that arises from a distinction revealed in Scripture. And that distinction is between the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the eternally begotten Son of the Father, a distinction between Him on the one hand and those who because of him, are named sons of God, adopted sons of God. And though there is this distinction, what we discover from Romans 8, as well as here in Galatians chapter 4, is that there is a necessary relation between the Son and Sons, Though we are sons by a different mode, in a different manner than the eternal Son of God, we are the sons of God, adopted as sons of God because of Christ, the Son. We receive a new as it were, legal status, a new legal name, and a new legal inheritance in and by Christ. We receive what was not our desert, but we receive according to grace. Sonship, and so we are heirs, heirs through God. A key part of Paul's argument against the false gospel, which would mix together faith and works, is what Paul says here in chapter 4 and verses. 1 through 7, building upon what he's already said, that those who are united to Christ by faith are, in fact, sons of God. Chapter 3 and verse 26. And because we are sons of God, we are Abraham's spiritual seed and heirs according to the promise. Verse 29 of chapter 3. According to the terms of God's covenant of grace, according to that 
new covenant established in and by Christ, Paul says, we are no longer under the tutelage and the bondage of the law. We are no longer under the old covenant. But in the new covenant, we are now sons of the living God. Here, he says that this great blessing of the gospel, this benefit of adoption, has been freely bestowed upon us in virtue of Christ. So that our status, our name, our inheritance is defined by our new relation to God in Christ. And as Paul goes on to refute that false gospel that had found its way into the churches in Galatia, again, a false gospel of confusing uh, faith and works, of adding works as necessary to our justification by God, Paul here expands and enlarges upon the truth that he has set forth concerning adoption as a benefit of Christ. He continues to speak here and in greater detail here in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 4 how it is that we, our sons, or who we receive adoption as sons in virtue of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even here in this text we have made known to us and clarified for us this distinction between the only begotten Son of God and the adopted sons of God. And we have further elucidated here then and clarified for us the necessary relation between the Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and who we are as sons in Him. And we're told here that in the fullness of time, the Son was born of a woman, born under the law, that He might redeem those under the law, so that we might receive the adoption of sons. Paul tells us that our inheritance is not of the law, quite simply because of what God has done in and by His own Son in the fullness of time. The Son has come. And because the Son has come, indeed because God sent forth His Son, we are redeemed. We are adopted. We are given a new status, a new name, and indeed a new and blessed inheritance through God. No longer bondservants, but sons. And if sons, heirs. And to understand this argument here, to understand this truth, we want to notice two things in particular from the text this morning. First of all, we want to notice what Paul here teaches us regarding the son of promise. The son of promise. The son 
the one whom we confess as Jesus Christ, the one who is our Lord, is the Son of God, and the Son of God who was promised to come. He is the Son of God eternally, always has been, always is, always will be the Son of God. And yet, as God made known His promises to sinful creatures throughout the Old Testament, He made the promise that His salvation, that His redemption of a people from sin would be through His Son. Paul summarizes in verse 4, in fact, something of the fullness of all the Old Testament promises and tells us that all of that has come to fruition now in the fullness or in what he calls the fullness of time. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son. All that God had purposed to do, all that God had promised to do, is encompassed in and fulfilled in the sending of His only begotten Son. This is the Son of the promise. Paul speaks of what preceded the fullness of time in the preceding verses, particularly verse 3. He talks about a stage of childhood when we were children. We were held in bondage under the rudiments of the world. These are the days prior to the coming of Christ, and in particular, the bondage that belongs to all those who are prior to Christ under that legal covenant, covenant made with Moses, made with Israel through Moses, what we often call the Old Covenant. And this bondage that he speaks of, the bondage that belongs to those who are children, is a bondage or a service to the law. A bondage to be under the law as a kind of guardian or steward until the day appointed for that guardianship and stewardship to end. He draws an example from the legal sphere of his own day in verses 1 and 2. And he speaks of the fact that a father's firstborn son, even though his legal status, his name and his inheritance all, again, legally are his from the time of his birth, there is an important sense in which 
under a time of guardianship and stewardship, he's no different from his father's servants. He's still under the government. He's still under the tutelage of his father's servants until the time appointed by his father for him. The difference here that Paul is speaking of, we might say, is between an infant or child on the one hand and a full-grown son on the other. Until the time appointed by the father, the child remains under his guardians, his stewards, those who are given to him for his education, his maturation. And this, Paul says, is similar to the status of God's people under the old covenant in comparison to the status of his people under the new covenant. God's people were once children, held under the bondage of the rudiments of the world, under those tactile and sensible ceremonies of Israel's worship, the people of God received a kind of elementary instruction. God himself, acting as steward and guardian of his people, These rudiments are said to be of the world, not because they're wicked, but because they're sensible things, tangible things, things that they could touch and see, taken from the created order, the temple, the beasts placed upon the altars. All of these things were rudiments, teaching tools of that schoolmaster, the law, that was temporary, imperfect, and destined to become obsolete. All of these things held God's children, his infants and pupils, under a kind of bondage. Namely, the bondage of the curse of the law, spoken of in chapter 3. And the bondage of their own inability to do all of the works of the law. In short, the old covenant was a life of slavery in which, as one author puts it, Israel was under the curse of the law and imprisoned to it because of their sin as well as because of their inability to fulfill its demands. The people of God were under a guardianship and stewardship, a guardianship and a stewardship that was a kind of bondage for those children. But something has changed. Why has it changed? Paul tells us in verses 4 and following. It has changed because... God sent forth His Son. And through the Son that came, through the Son that was born of a woman and born under the law, redemption has come. And because redemption has come, so has adoption. As sons. 
Not only is the guardianship and stewardship been removed, but so a new status has been given. The guardianship and stewardship proper to children is removed so that now we are sons. But all of this has to do, all of this is because God sent His Son. When the fullness of time came, Paul speaks of the whole of the Old Testament here as a time that was pregnant, awaiting a particular fullness. A time that was pregnant with promise, and particularly the promise of a son. Galatians 3.15 speaks of the promise of the seed of the woman. And that promise is fleshed out throughout the Old Testament. Even to the point where David, Israel's great king, is promised a son to sit upon his throne. And the prophet Isaiah, even as... The kingdom of Israel appears to be in shambles. Even as he prophesies of a time when the king would be dethroned and the people of God despoiled and deported from out of the land of promise, he yet speaks of a coming redemption through a son, but unto us. A child is given unto us. A son is born. All of time was marching step by step towards this fullness. Towards the fulfillment of this promise. The sending of a son. And Paul says that the sending of that son is the sending of God's own son. The fullness of time had come. The years had come ripe. The appointed time of the father had arrived. And he sent forth his only begotten son to be born of a woman, born under the law, and to redeem those under the law. When the time appointed by God had, come, had arrived, he fulfilled his word And he did so by sending his own son. Again, his natural son, his eternal son. The son who is of the same essence as the father. The son who is of the same eternity, of the same power. The son who is true God. He mysteriously, but mercifully, was born of a woman and born under the law. So that as... 
a man. As the seed of the woman, he might crush the head of the serpent. That is, that he might redeem them that were under the law. And that in virtue of his work of redemption, in virtue of his Satan-crushing crucifixion, and his curse-destroying death, himself bearing the curse, we, sinners, we, bondservants, under the law, might receive the adoption of sons. The Son, again, true God, born of a woman. Here we meet the mystery of the incarnation of the eternal Son of God. Here we meet something of the mystery of His conception in the womb of the Virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here we meet something of the mystery of a birth unlike any other birth. And in that birth we meet the mystery of the Son who took to Himself our flesh so that He might take to Himself our sin and our curse and bestow upon us a status heretofore unknown. Sonship. The Son became a servant so that through His service we might become sons. Here in the mystery of the person of the Son and in the mystery of the Incarnation and in the mystery of Redemption, we meet something of the mystery of the mercy of God. Not just in fulfilling His promises, but in fulfilling His promises through His Son. His own beloved Son. The Son who dwells in His bosom eternally. He is sent and He is born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem and to bestow upon us a status a name, and an inheritance of grace. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate, brings to an end the things that is the bondage of the Old Covenant, but also brings to an end the bondage of the law and its curse, even as it applies to us as sinners in Adam, and blesses us with the benefit of his saving work, granting unto us the adoption of sons. Who is the Son of promise? It is the Son of God. The Son of God who exists prior to 
and above and outside that promise. He, he existed eternally. He is the Son. Natural, essential Son. But this Son of God, according to the promise, is the seed of the woman. The Son of Abraham, as it were. True God and true man. Who, because He redeems us, From the curse of the law. Gives us. A status. A name. An inheritance. Sons. Of the living God. The promised son. Everything that is ours as sons. Is in virtue. Of the son of God. And in virtue of his appointment. His sending. His being born of a woman. His being born under the law to fulfill its requirements. His redeeming those that are under the law. And His granting unto us the adoption of sons. All that we are is in virtue of Him. But what are we? So we think of not only the son of promise, but must also think secondly of the sons of promise. Adopted sons. The blessing conferred upon us in virtue of the son of God incarnate is that of adoption as sons. This is an adoption that is to be traced, first of all, to the Father's grace. God sent His Son. Adoption that is ours in virtue of Christ's redemption is received. Notice verse 5. He was sent. He was born. And He redeemed that we might receive the adoption of sons. Paul traces adoption to the Father's grace. He traces it as well to Christ's merit. By virtue of His obedience. Remember, this is the Son born of a woman, born under the law, redeeming those under the law by His own obedience, by His own curse-bearing satisfaction. In virtue of that merit, all who look to this Christ by faith receive the adoption of sons. Indeed, as Paul spells out what this means, he says, And because ye are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Most certainly, we think of This is pertaining to prayer, but really this is Paul saying that every blessing of God's saving grace in Christ, the fullness of sonship is sent into your hearts. The Spirit of God Himself being sent into your hearts. The Spirit of Christ unites us to Christ. 
and so gives to us all of Christ's merits and all of the benefits of his perfect work. Indeed, because we are sons in virtue virtue of God's grace and in virtue of Christ's merit, the blessing of fellowship with the triune God is ours. God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Intimate fellowship with the Father in virtue of the Son through the Spirit. The adoption that is ours is a status that gives unto us fellowship with the Father, fellowship with His Son, and fellowship with the Spirit. Nothing short of communion with the triune God belongs to those who are sons in the Son. You, dear believer, by grace, you, dear believer, because of Jesus Christ, you live as it were in the most intimate of bonds with Father, Son, and Spirit. I'm not sure that we can exactly understand this, comprehend it. I'm not sure that we can fully appreciate this side of glory the gift that is ours by God's grace in his son because we are sons our very dwelling our very existence our our spiritual life the warp and woof of all that we are as sons is a life before the face of the Father. Now we don't see this presently. We we know it by faith. We enter into it by faith in Christ and we we continue in that state as it were in virtue of, of faith in Christ. And we grow in the graces of God. We We grow in the fruits of the Spirit. But there's a sense in which what we shall be when we see God is already begun in us and the fellowship that will be ours for eternity as we live in 
glorified body and soul before the face of our God. That's begun in us now. It's a blessing and a benefit that belongs to us now. Think of the way in which the book of Revelation pictures in chapters 4 and 5 the glorified church of Christ gathering with all of the hosts of heaven before the throne of God, the throne of the Lamb and the praises that the glorified churches of Christ give unto Him. That blessing belongs to us now. That communion with God belongs to us now. We say in a manner of speaking, Whom have I in heaven but Thee? We may have... No friends here upon the earth, but we have fellowship with God. Now, thankfully, God gives us friends. He knits our hearts together in the context of the church, gives us fellowship with his people. But the blessing of sonship the fulfilling of God's promises in making us His sons brings with it the blessing, the benefit, the beatitude of fellowship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are sons of God by the grace of God through the merit of Christ, the Son of God, and by the powerful operation of the Holy Spirit. Conferred upon us then is a new status, a new name, and a new inheritance. No longer bondservants, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And here, what we know now by grace, we will know then in glory. That is, we will know the inheritance of dwelling with God, the inheritance of fellowship with God. All of this by way of promise. All of this in virtue of the Son sent. The Son born. The Son redeeming. The Son giving us adoption. In virtue of the Son, we dwell with Him as sons. Not only then is the curse of sin removed, but the blessing of sonship is conferred. And because we are sons, we are heirs 
All of this through God. All of this through what He has done. All of this through what He has done in His Son. The promised Son delivers all of God's promises and makes us sons. The mystery of the gospel, the mystery of our own salvation and sonship depends upon the mystery of God sending his son His own Son, His own natural and essential Son, His only begotten Son, sending Him to take upon Himself our flesh, to take upon Himself our curse, and to redeem us from that curse. Are you a Son of God? You believe upon the Son. You see, because it is only in the Son who was sent, the Son who was born, the Son who redeems, that you, a servant of sin, might become a Son of the living God. And if you are a Son, if you've looked to the Son incarnate, to the Redeemer, and found life in Him, then what He has conferred upon you, though beyond your full comprehension now, is a blessing that you know by faith in Him. You have fellowship with God. You, though in Adam, were cast out east of Eden. Made a stranger, as it were, to God. Barred from fellowship with your maker through the Son. You have been redeemed. Through the Son, you have been granted a new status, a new name, a new inheritance. And you may cry out to God from your heart in which God the Spirit dwells. You may cry out to Him in the most intimate of terms. Abba, Father. The Son's own Father is your Heavenly Father. That's what God has conferred upon you. That's what God has given you. In giving you, in His Son, a new name, a new status, a new inheritance, He has given you life in the presence, His own presence. The presence of God. He's made you to be one 
who will dwell in the presence of God and delight in Him forever. And though faith is presently weak, though your hope may wax and wane here and now, these things are certain. Not because of your faith, not because of your hope, but because of God's Son who has made you a son. And once that status has been conferred, once you've received the adoption of sons, it is never taken away. As sure as you belonged to God the day you believed, so you belong to Him now. As, as sure and as certain as is your life before the face of God the day you first believed, so it is now. As sure as your access to the Father was in virtue of the Son and through the Spirit the day you first believed, so it is now, so it shall be unending. And, and, all that you presently have by faith, you shall have to a greater degree one day by sight. Today, presently, we cry, Abba, Father, without seeing Him. One day, we shall proclaim in praise with all of the church of Christ from every generation and across the globe, we shall proclaim Abba, Father, in His very presence, beholding Him in the face of His Son. We are sons of God by adoption. In virtue of the Son, whoever was and is and shall be. May God be praised.